Welcome to the Meaningful Work Matters podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Soren, founder of Eudaimonic by Design. On this podcast, we'll dive into the world of meaningful work, explore its complexities, and examine its impact on people and the organizations they're a part of. Each episode features insightful conversations with cutting-edge experts who are successfully navigating the challenges of meaningful work. We hope to offer you ideas, frameworks, and tools to unlock potential and design work that's fulfilling, impactful, and supports everyone's well-being. Subscribe or follow us now, and let's make meaningful work matter. I'm super excited to be talking with Scott Barry Kaufman today. I have been a big fan of your work, Scott, for many really? years. Um, yeah, absolutely. I first met you, I think, when you were running the Imagination Institute at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, and I've been following your work ever since. I'm a huge fan of your psychology podcast. And truth be told, I'm possibly a little, a little intimidated to be um, the host of this particular uh, episode and to be having um, the tables turned um, and, to, and to be able to, I'm actually really excited to be able to, to have you as a guest in this context. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Well, my pleasure. It's been wonderful watching your career uh, flourish. And uh, yeah, congratulations to everything you've been accomplishing and putting out into the world. Thank you so much, Scott. Maybe um, let's start by just introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your relationship with the topic of meaningful work. You know, the idea of work doesn't sound fun. <laughs> you know, the kind of approach I take is that is is a very being approach and that you know if you organize your life around your being and what lights you up and what gives you a spirit of vitality in life um you never have to use the word work your entire life so um yeah i'm i'm just trying to i'm trying to riff on this this whole notion of meaningful work because it's it feels like if you if you obtain meaningful work it's you've obtained a meaningful being and uh i suppose i just it's just the way the lens upon which i view the world so that's my answer to your question <laughs> no, i love that answer to the question and i think it's the reason why i'm excited to have you on this show to actually talk about being um to talk about to talk about possibly the things that animate us much more than work um but um but yeah, I mean, in, in many ways, I actually think that so much of what the theory and research of meaningful work is, frankly, of what eudaimonia, which is what I care a lot about, and what positive psychology is much more broadly, actually stems from, you know, thought throughout millennia about being. Um, and specifically, I guess, the, the humanistic revolution of the 20th century. Um, mm -hmm. And that's something that you've written a lot about. You have a brilliant book called Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization that you published a couple of years ago, which is in many ways a, um, a, re, a reimagining, a rethinking of Maslow and, uh, and um, uh, his theories of self-actualization. And um, and maybe we can just start there. I I would love if you could just tell us a little bit more about what what was the humanistic revolution of the 20th century. Well, Abraham Maslow really tried to create a humanistic psychology revolution. Um, a lot of people use the word humanism in, in relation to my work, and I don't use that word. I use the word humanistic. You know, humanism was a different movement. I mean, that was like a 
the movement of of reason and you know Steven Pinker loves that. He wrote a whole book on it. He didn't write about humanistic psychology. He wrote about you know humanism is a philosophy. So I just want to make a distinction between humanism, the philosophical revolution, and the field of humanistic psychology, which I think is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, a really feeling. It's not all about rationality. It's about integrating the rational with the emotive, with feeling fully alive and reaching your fullest potentials. That was a revolution that Abraham Maslow tried to uh, to to make happen in the 60s. And he died you know, quite young, 62 years old, and, and um, he had a lot left to go. But yeah, all the way up to the very end of his life, he was working on a revolution that would uh, would would take us to a transcendent state of of human consciousness. He really did view human potential as more than just self actualization. In fact, towards the end of his life, he said he preferred the term "fully human" to the term "self actualization," <laughs> and um, I thought that was interesting. But he, yeah, this this. Uh, you know, are we? Uh, is it a revolution right now in 2023? Is that what I'm working on? Is that what I'm doing? Is that my mission? Uh, perhaps. You know, the word revolution sounds very uh, uh, extreme, um, but I, I really do think that uh, there are enough people on this planet who really want to vibrate at a higher frequency of consciousness and who want to uh, tear down a lot of the uh, divisions um in even in our language and the way we view things in an either or way as opposed to a yes and way uh Maslow called that dichotomy transcendence i really do think we need a lot of that today so to me that's that's what i would see as the the modern day manifestation of that revolution i like the idea that we are um engaged in a revolution together it seems like yeah it seems like a good a good way to 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 begin you um you just mentioned the word potential um which is a, a word that has certainly been very important throughout your career um there's a there's a quote that i have in your book that um that you say that you've you within your career it's it's become clearer and clearer that we have limiting notions of potential that are dictated by others especially people like school teachers parents managers the more blind we become to the full potential of every unique individual and their unique path to self-actualization and transcendence so um help us understand what do you mean by potential and why do you think that we have such limiting views around it i think we have such limiting views around potential because we view potential as some sort of fixed target and i really think that it's a very probabilistic thing that can change uh on a dime you know what what may look like we have no potential for you know completely something happens and we completely re, re, reconfigures the 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 probability uh situation and uh i think that's why we always need to have hope and need to also stop with comparisons with other people you know oh that person's doing so much better than me that person you know in a school system oh that person has so much more potential because they got into harvard whereas i don't have as much potential because i got into carnegie mellon you know like you know, and then and then and then you think that that's a measure of potential you know what school you get into um in fact you probably have a higher potential if you don't go to school <laughs> you just create something wonderful uh right away but um, you know, it's just I I just think this the whole notion that we have starting in school of of potential as a fixed target, and then as adults, as I guess in 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 the workplace, you know, this idea of potential and hiring for talent, you know, we really we really leave a lot of people 
uh, who who have all who are brimming with potential, um, we leave them uh, by the sideline. You know, there's uh, so many people with hidden potential, and it's um, it's only recognized when we appreciate the neurodiversity of humanity. One of the things that I love um, so much about the idea of eudaimonia is this idea that we all have potential to lean into. And yeah. in some work of life is about trying to figure out what is that potential? How do we potentiate ourselves to be able to, to be our fullest and greatest yeah. self? Yeah. I, you, the idea of eudaimonia, I mean, that's wonderful. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's often treated as a contrast to hedonia. And I don't think that, that, that again, the, the dichotomy transcendence of, of Maslow, he would say, in fact, hedonic uh value is a hierarchy in itself you can have very high you can have higher higher hedonic values and lower hedonic values uh ranging from uh, more immediate satisfactions which are fine i mean i'm not against that uh, <laughs> um in fact i'm pretty much for that um uh, I, I view myself as a hedonist you know um all the way up to um yeah, but i'm a meaningful hedonist you know i i move up to uh, the highest levels of hedonia um mm-hmm. you get where you get you get uh, you get hedonic value from helping others you get hedonic value from the 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 values of pure being itself i don't understand why we make such a stark distinction between hedonia and eude- eudaimonia because when eudaimonia is, is done right i think you get hedonic value from the higher values yeah yeah that's a that's a key theme of um of transcend in in so many it ways. is like people get rewarded for doing the right thing that like that's if, right. if you can figure out that secret then there's um that there's all sorts of a possibility in all sorts of different contexts yes I, that's right that's right it sounds like you read the book <laughs> um well one of the things that becomes very clear when you read the book even in the very first few pages is that that you know pyramid of um of needs that we all think of when we think of maslow um is probably the wrongest metaphor that we could possibly have when it comes to um when it comes to what maslow was actually trying to say about uh, about self-actualization um you you come up with um a metaphor of a sailboat so what's wrong with the the pyramid and um and why should we think about that those needs in the context of a sailboat it seems like a better metaphor for the self-actualization journey so with, with a sailboat you're constantly opening up the sail closing the sail you you um, go through moments where you don't feel safe and uh, stable, and you know you need to attend to the basic needs of the boat itself, so that the water doesn't come in and you don't feel like you're drowning, you know. And you know sometimes you're gonna have those days, and some days you're gonna have those days where you feel like you're really sailing uh, and uh, and really catching the wind, and um, and and uh, and everything's in that flow state of consciousness. And those are wonderful moments. You can't have those moments every day. You can't have those moments the whole day of any day you know look it's just that's the life cycle and uh so i think the the sailboat shows that integrative process of of these how these various parts work together and it really resonates that sailboat metaphor really resonates and i've used it a lot um in probably a too oversimplified a way um not only on this podcast but when i've talked about the relationship between meaningful work and decent work to kind of talk about the fact that you know in many ways 
decency at work um, is is like the hull of the boat. I mean, it's it's the thing that kind of keeps us afloat. Um, and uh, and meaning is at least one of the sales. It's one of your sales. It's certainly not the only sale that you have. Um, but that if you're just holding on to that sail without the hull in the middle of an ocean, it's probably going to drown you, um, let alone take you anywhere. But um, yeah. but let's just unpack that a little bit further and kind of I love because because I I, I really do I do uh, love the way that you've constructed this this metaphor. Um, you know, you say that the hull of the boat is about safety, connection, and self esteem. Um, how do those kinds of things do you think show up at work? Uh, well, hugely. I mean, there's a rich, really rich literature, scientific literature on each of those topics. Um, you know, you, you look at connection, for instance, you know, the importance of high quality connections in the workplace, like the work of Jane Dudden is just really brilliant along these lines, um, showing that, uh, it can, it can cause, well, well, I would say I would go further and say, just, I don't view any of these things as isolated parts of a system. So, um, the reason why I call it the security system, and then I have the growth system. Those are the two main systems is because within each system, each one really profoundly affects the other, you know, and um, and colors the world. Like if you really uh, are an environment in the workplace with low quality connections, um, it can feel like this corrosive black hole where every interaction is um, causing dark, more greater, greater darkness. And um, that really can impact your self-esteem, you know, and your sense of mastery uh, and self-worth in the workplace. And it also will flow into the idea of low um safety sense of safety and coherence in your environment um so i just think all these things really uh really need to be viewed as a system and not isolated things and and really when you're feeling great self-esteem you're in the workplace you're feeling like your work is going really well um and that uh, you're socially valued in the workplace then your need for uh, high quality connections is not as great See, I, you don't want to be so needy. The point is, with when you get to the growth realm, you realize that you just want to satisfy those basic needs to a certain degree where you don't become so needy for them. There was um, there was something that really struck a chord for me when I was uh, reading specifically the pieces around safety. Um, there's uh, there's another researcher of Kenya, Lasova, who's going to be on this podcast in, in another few episodes. And, um, and she and her colleagues have done a lot of research about um, the say do gap between like what organizations say they care about and what they do espoused versus enacted values. And, um, and they're such a killer for the motivation of people who are engaged in meaningful work. Like when there is that say do gap, it just, it really erodes and destroys and destroys people's like, it just, it creates anger and frustration and outrage. And, um, and it, it made me like when I was reading what you were saying about coherence and the kind of safety need that coherence is connected to and the idea of psychological entropy, um, as, um, as, as a, a piece of that puzzle, it made me think very differently about what that say do gap actually represents and, and perhaps why it causes so much destabilization in organizations. Oh, I love that distinction. There's also this, you know, we in our coaching self-actualization coaching program we're we're working on. We we constantly talk about the being versus doing, sort of uh, when we're being purpose versus doing purpose, being love versus doing love, um, being open versus uh, doing openness or creativity. Um, you know, these are 
you know important distinctions that we can make through uh, through everything through all through all the different uh, systems um you know uh, you can go one by one and and I can elucidate what I mean you know like when when you're doing love you're 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 giving you know for the sake of getting something else you know like greater status greater power greater um you know, like a company is like, oh, well, if we give more, you know, our bottom line will be increased. It's like, okay, that's great. Great motivation for giving. That's great. I mean, it could be a great motivation, actually, if if that money is then going towards more help of the world, but it could also not be good. Um, so anyway, I don't think any of these things are, are absolutely good or bad, but just being mindful of uh, when you're in a being state versus a doing state. Maybe in some ways, the things that are missing most from the discussion around meaningful work. So I said that, uh, you know, a lot of the debate in meaningful work is like, can you have meaningful work without decency? Um, but it feels, uh, it feels like you totally missed the boat on the possibilities of, of true growth, of true self-actualization of, of ultimately, you know, the transcendence needs that, um, that Maslow is ultimately yes. trying to get at. So, um, so maybe let's, let's go there. Tell us more about, um, the other sales beyond. So, I mean, one of, one of the pieces of the sale is purpose, but the other pieces of the sale, um, are, uh, are exploration, love. I, I've, again, I've used a system, exploration, love, and purpose it comprise the growth system. And the base of that is exp- the spirit of exploration, of curiosity, of openness, of, you know, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to learn something from everything i'm not gonna let failure you know deter me and that sort of openness is is the spirit that pervades the the journey the adventure of life uh, that can lead to growth it, it lead, it's the soil for growth but integrated with a spirit of humanitarian concern um which i view love as different than connection you know a lot of people in the world right now they're connected to people in their in group Sure, you're connected to your family, you have similar genes. There's so much hate right now of the outgroup. My work can contribute to that in any meaningful way. It would it would really be, make me very happy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so uh, integrating a spirit of exploration with a spirit of universal love and concern for humanity, um, integrated with um, uh, your values and uh, and a goal, a higher level goal of where you're moving. Too. Where's your what port is your what port are you sailing to? Um, when you integrate those three things, I think we get um, a nice uh, idea of what growth looks like. Um, you say growth. Um, when you talk about kind of growth-driven life or a growth motivation, is that different than a growth mindset? It is. Thank you for that softball question because I, <laughs> I, I I constantly <laughs> I appreciate it, Andrew. I constantly tell people, you know, I'm I'm much more interested in growth motivation than growth mindset. Uh, growth motivation is where you're motivated by those three things that I just mentioned. You know, you're motivated by a sense of humanitarian concern, um, a sense, a spirit of exploration and growth, and a sense of purpose. Um, but those things are integrated. Um, and uh, to me, that's that's growth motivation. I I think that you know, so what? So kids have growth mindset in school for standardized test scores. You know, that's great. That'll get them into a better college, maybe. That'll help them with their grades. But is that going to help them living a meaningful, have a meaningful work? You know, someday. You know, is that going to? You know, it's like, and we just reward that. You know, it's like, you know, the people who are obsessed with growth mindset are obsessed with grit. 
And I think that um, these are not bad things. Nothing's bad or good by themselves, right? I'm not like tearing down anything here. Uh, but, you know, blind grit is is like, okay, you know, so what? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate it also just the way that the way that that whole system has to work. I mean, you even talk about the fact that, you know, purpose is not always healthy. You can have very, very, you know, maladaptive um, or unhealthy or, or, uh, or, or corrupted purposes, I guess, in different ways. But I guess if you are, if you are seeing it all as a system and you're bringing together that, that sense of purpose with a sense of, you know, transcendent love, then it's a lot harder to go wrong. And, and you, I just think I see a great connection between that and eudaimonia. There's a lot of debate among philosophers about what exactly he meant by eudaimonia. I think I know what he meant. <laughs> um, and I think he was really referring to self-actualization. You know, I think he was really referring to um, uh, realizing the, the most meaningful, unique center of your being um, and um, developing that to its full potential. Um, I really do think he meant potential. Let's bring this back to work. In the context of transcendent of transcend, you talk about um, Andrew K. Nonlinear Systems and is it Eusychian Workplace? The Eusychian Workplace. Yeah, that was the notion that Maslow had. Yeah. yeah, tell tell us a little bit about that. We had a vision for uh, the workplace that was one where self actualization was an important goal of its uh, workers. I mean, he really he extended this work on theory X and theory Y, you know, the, the notion that uh, we work towards, we, we reward people through carrot stick kind of situation that, that the, the theory, the theory of theory X is that workers work best when they get punished for doing bad and get rewarded for doing good. Um, theory Y is, um, that there's a sort of a uh, intrinsic motivation. They're, they're they're really rewarded intrinsically, um, uh, and Maslow extended that and said, you know, there's a, I think there's a theory Z where where workers are motivated by transcendence, um, and I think a lot of his writings about psyche and management were even you know there was a there's a, like a difference in his writings as he gets older and older and older. And all the way up to the very end, he really gets more and more interested in transcendence and more and more interested in what does it mean to, uh, even in the workplace, be motivated by the, by the highest values and by, tr- by transcendent values and to be motivated by uh, peak experiences. You know? What do you think that would look like? Like, what would a Theory Z workplace look like? What would the enabling conditions for it be? Well, I think it'd be one where the, the the greatest conditions for the flow state of consciousness were maximized, um, where uh, people um, had peak experiences in the workplace. You know, mm-hmm. they had uh, they they found their work fused with their highest values. Um, it makes me think about another uh, another part of the book. Um, you quote Maslow as. Um, as, as saying the following in an interview. One day, just after Pearl Harbor, I was driving home and my car was stopped by a poor, pathetic parade. As I watched, the tears began to run down my face. I thought we didn't understand, not Hitler, not the Germans, not Stalin, not the communists. We didn't understand any of them. I felt that if we could understand, then we could make progress. I had a vision of a peace table with people sitting around it, talking about how human nature and hatred, war and peace and brotherhood. 
I was too old to get into the army. It was at that moment that I realized that the rest of my life must be devoted to discovering the psychology of the peace table. Tell us about the psychology of the peace table for Maslow. Oh man, just got to chill. Uh, I feel like that's the that's that's what I'm devoting the rest of my life to as well. Um, especially with this next book I'm working on. Um, yeah, I just think that ego is 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 such a big divider. It's such an unnecessary divider. Where humans are so good at creating division, creating divisions, uh, and they're not as good in um, fostering peace. And why is that? You know, why is hate stronger than love? Um, and it comes down to our whole evolution and how we, what's you know, in our DNA. Um, but it doesn't mean that we can't evolve a higher consciousness to override it and uh, obtain what we really want out of our lives. Uh, there's just, uh, there could be a greater integration between evolution and positive psychology. My, my friend Glenn Gear just published a really great book, um, uh, Positive Evolutionary Psychology, which I wrote, I wrote the foreword to. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that uh, we can have a more realistic understanding of human nature in the field of positive psychology. Um, I see some of these uh, toxic positivity people at the conferences, you know, that are a little too intense for me. Let's 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 be there. Let's for people. Let's live in the space where people are living. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> have you ever met anyone like that before? I sure have. I sure have. I mean, it feels it feels in some ways like there couldn't be a more important topic for this field um, for the work that we all do. Um, yeah. especially in the context of so much of what's happening in the world today is for us to figure out what the psychology of the peace table actually is. And I think yes. that actually, it, it plays a big role in, in organizations too. I mean, as, as my colleague Dove Seidman would say, you know, it, it seems that increasingly in the world of work, you know, we're heightened by, by this, we're heightened by this moral arousal, like CEOs are expected to like stand up and take stands on socio-political topics in ways that feel totally different than anything that they were ever trained to do or thinking that they might have to. And whether we're talking about things like Black Lives Matter or abortion rights or the conflict in the Middle East, like employees want their organizations to take a stand, um, even if that doing so only just, you know, creates greater reputational risk in their organizations. What do you think Maslow would say about all of that? I mean, Maslow would be all about that. He just he viewed self-actualization not as impulsive, but as spontaneous, and that's different mm-hmm. and impulsive. Mm-hmm. Um, the notion that it's going to be easy is such a bit. He he really railed against the kids in the sixty hippies who viewed self-actualization as easy through drugs and sex. And he really wanted to make clear that it's through hard work and determination and 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 and, and integrity. Is there anything else that you're working on that you think that people would uh, be keen to know about it? I know that you're always working on tons, so that might be a hard question. But <laughs> well, check out the Psychology Podcast um, as always. And uh, I am working on a new book, but that won't be out till uh, 2025, um, spring 2025. Um, but uh, there are lots of things coming up on her on the horizon but uh, it was really great to talk to you andrew i really uh, appreciate the how you show up in the world and your uh your commitment to integrity and um and helping people with meaningful work it's it's no small thing that you're doing thank you scott 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Meaningful Work Matters. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. And if this episode resonated with you, please take a moment to leave us a review. Your feedback helps us make this podcast better and reach more listeners. You can connect with me, Andrew Soren, on LinkedIn or visit www.eubd.ca to learn more about Eudaimonic by Design. Finally, if what you heard today spoke to you, tell your colleagues and people in your community about our podcast. We really appreciate your support in making meaningful work matter. See you next time.